As I said to Eric earlier this morning, Howard who? <laughs> Not Howard Hughes, Howard who. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to have you back, Howard. Ruth chapter 3 this morning. Let's turn together to Ruth chapter 3. Well, first things first. So uh, there's a relationship brewing. And we want to make a public announcement about this relationship. Some of you have already heard that it's between Boaz and Ruth. (laughs) So we're going to continue our story of Ruth this morning. So the first scene of this chapter, Luke is blushing. I don't know what that's about. In the first scene of this chapter, Naomi thinks that it's time for Ruth to get married. And she knows just the right man. His name is Boaz. And Naomi is very familiar with the laws of God, and she wants Ruth to know her legal rights. So last week we learned about a law uh, that God had instituted in Israel called what we call the law of the gleaner, where you could go into the field of, uh, of a farmer and you could glean wheat or, or grain from the corners of the field and enjoy it for free. That was last week. This week we want to learn about the law of the kinsman redeemer. So let's turn to Ruth 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, you may remember, if you've been with us, uh, that Naomi and her husband had sinned against God, and they had run from God's discipline of the nation of Israel, and they had looked for help in all the wrong places. And while they were in Moab, running from God, um, Elimelech died. And within ten years, Naomi's two sons had also died. And she was bitter because of the events of her life. And she wanted everyone to know about her bitterness. Yet God wanted to restore Naomi, and he wanted to save Ruth at the same time. And when she repented, she returned back to Bethlehem, and she said to them, basically, I want to change my name. Stop calling me Naomi, O pleasant one, and instead call me Mara, bitterness, because that's what I am. I am bitter of heart because the Almighty has made me bitter, and he has taken everything from me. So she was bitter. And the Bible says that although God disciplines believers, it, and it's not pleasant, okay? I will not stand here and say that discipline is pleasant. It is not. And it says that in the Scripture. It is not pleasant for the moment. But afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The only reason God disciplines us is because He loves us. And He disciplines us to bring about peace and fruit in our lives. And that's what he was doing here with Naomi as well. As long as Naomi kept dwelling on her own hurt and her own loss, she would remain in this pit of despair. And really, for the first chapter, that's where we see her, just kind of moping and 
and crying and bitter and upset, although she's in now the right place. We will grant her that. She's in the right place, but she's not quite right yet uh, with the Lord. But in this chapter, praise the Lord, in this first verse, we finally see a breakthrough in Naomi. And for the first time, we see Naomi thinking more about others than she's thinking about herself. Wonderful. You know, there's a word for that. It's called love. Love. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says this, Love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wrong. Love puts the interests of others ahead of our own interests. And when Naomi finally does this, as far as I can see in the rest of the book, she's healed. The bitterness is gone. It's over. And, and what is now in the past is in the past. And God now has her moving in the right direction, in the right way, and with the right attitude. And it's a wonderful thing to see this change in her heart. And so we no longer hear her complaints about herself and her own bitterness and the way life has gone for her and all of this kind of stuff. Instead, what we see is, you know what, Ruth? You need to be married. I'm going to take an interest in you and your needs and you and what's right for you, and I'm going to focus on you. That's love. And that's the way we should be as believers as well. Sometimes we receive blows in life. Guess what? It's common to all of us. And we can become bitter and angry and resentful and all of the rest of it and live our lives like that. I remember Bill McDonald when he taught on prayer in the intern program. One of the prayers he used to pray every day was, Lord, please don't let me die a bitter old man. Good prayer. I thought, wow, why would he pray that way? (laughs) And then life began to happen. And you see blows, and you think, you know what, I could become bitter. I could become resentful. I could become angry. I could become all those things, and I could die that way, a bitter old man. Lord, don't let me die, a bitter old man. Love puts the interest of others ahead of, her, uh, of our own interests. It says that she's seeking security for Ruth. What does that mean? Well, she's seeking a husband and a home for Ruth. And Naomi encouraged Ruth to go down to the threshing floor of Boaz and ask him to act out his role as a kinsman redeemer for her. Actually, it's his legal obligation to do so. And uh, we'll see that as time goes on here. But in chapter 2, verse 2, I should say, Boaz is a near relative. Many of you are finishing up The uh, Stranger on the Road to Emmaus. I think you finished today, right? Okay. And uh, we've been studi- some of you have been studying with another person, and I want to tell you something about that study with that other person. That person who's studying with you, they love you. They love you. And like Naomi, they're saying to you, I want to seek security for you. I want to seek what's best for you. And that's what they're saying, just like Naomi did to Ruth. They want what's best for you. And if you listen carefully to everything that they've taught you and listen carefully to the direction they're pointing you, they're pointing you to the one Redeemer who can save your soul. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. If you follow what they have taught you, it will go well for you. So, Boaz, we hear in this uh, first couple of verses, is threshing, is on the threshing floor and he's uh, working with the grain. So we're going to take a look at some uh, pictures here. 
I think. Okay, so this is the first picture of a threshing floor. So it's a level area. It's a circular area about 30 feet in diameter. And the floor is leveled out. It's prepared. All of the stones or rocks are taken away from the middle of the, of the circle, and they're put to the edges of the floor, to the outer edge of the circle. And the, it acts as a barrier to hold the grain. And so sheaves are brought in by ox carts, and, or if they're not wealthy enough to have ox carts, they're brought in by hand, and they're uh, placed on the floor, and an ox or oxen would trample over the top of the grain, and it breaks the grain away from the head of the, of the stalk. And um, if two oxen are together, they're to be yoked together, they're to be equal in size, and uh, they should be equally yoked together. If you see on that picture, there's a little sled or sleigh that is behind the two oxen in the middle. And uh, even to this day, in some parts of the world, this is how they separate the, the grain from, the, um, from the, the, the stock. And what they do is they ride this sled. Sometimes they put little kids on there behind the, uh, the, the oxen, and they just ride it. That's their... Amusement park, right there. <laughs> I'd get a little sick going around in circles like that, but that's what they do, even to this day. Um, and they pull the sled, and, and it would crush the grain. You know, it's really wonderful. These illustrations here in Ruth are actually seen throughout the Bible, and, and there are a lot of Bible illustrations about farming and, and all of that. I want to bring some to your attention um, one is that we are told not to be unequally yoked together. And so it would not be a good thing <clears throat> to, to marry an ox and a donkey, for example. Okay, Because a donkey is a kind of a stubborn animal. And it tends to want to go its own direction, its own way. And so you want to be equally yoked, yoked together, so that uh, you'll get the work done. The Bible says that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For when we are yoked together with unbelievers, they're heading in one direction, and it may not be right. It may not be righteous. It may not be honoring to God. And believers want to honor the Lord. And so there's this pull, there's tension always in a relationship. And so it forbids marrying unbelievers or being in partnership with unbelievers. That's because you're going to be pulled in two different directions. Oxen are also used in the New Testament to illustrate elders. You big ox, Howard. You big ox, Eric. <laughs> oh yeah, me too. <laughs> Paul applies uh, this threshing of, uh, to the work of elders in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5.18. It says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. If you notice, there's no muzzle on the oxen on the picture, meaning that they're free to go down and, and partake of what they've just crushed out. They can eat the grain. It's perfectly right for them to do so. So, the other thing about the threshing floor, it's usually located in an area where at some point during the day there will be a breeze. And we'll talk about why that is in just a minute. Okay, second picture. 
uh, is about the instruments of threshing. There are several ways of separating the grain from the heads. We saw the oxen. This is another way. And this is probably the way Ruth did it. So there's an instrument they still use today, and it's basically two sticks, one, one that you're holding, and then, then there's two pieces of rope attached to a second stick. And as you beat the grain, the, the loose stick flies over and whacks it. You know, so it's basically crushing the grain that way. Sometimes they would just take a long stick and just beat it with one stick, but the other is more effective. And so these men here are actually using that two-prong stick. Um, And so Ruth probably took the grain that she had gathered out in the field and she brought it to the threshing floor and she beat out her own grain and uh, separated it this way. In a larger production, farmers, as I said, would use the oxen uh, to do it. All right, third picture is the winnowing process. And so once you've taken the grain and you've now beat, the st- beat it up, you've got straw and you've got grain all mixed together. And so how do you separate it? And so this is the winnowing process. They take basically a fork type of instrument or a big flat paddle and they scoop it up and they throw it into the air. And here's where the wind comes in handy. Okay, if you're in an area with a breeze... The wind acts as a natural separator because the grain is heavier than the straw. And so as the stuff is thrown up into the air, the grain falls straight back down to the ground. And the wind is blown to the side. Remember those stones around the side of the circle? It's blown to that part of the, uh, of the threshing floor. And then the chaff, some of you have heard the word chaff. That's like the little specks. That gets just blown away altogether, way out. The psalmist said, the ungodly are not like the righteous, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. That's what it's talking about. And when Jesus speaks about the speck in your eye, you remember that? Where he says, um, if you see in your brother a speck in his eye, and you've got a telephone pole in yours, how are you going to possibly be able to see clearly enough to remove the speck from his eye? And he's probably talking about something that they were all familiar with. You can imagine working in a situation like this with wind blowing, and you're standing downwind, and he's just thrown something up in the air, and you that just got in my eye, thank you very much. Come help me get the speck out of my eye. And he comes over with his telephone pole. Yeah, okay, I'll help you. Okay. Jesus was talking about it, of course, when we see sin in another person's life, and you say, hey, you know, you're a liar, and I need to help you with this lie. And, and you're a habitual liar. You've got, you lie in an exaggerated degree. You're not going to be able to help that person until you take care of the telephone pole in your eye first. Okay, so that's where that fits. The fourth picture is the sifting process. So even after you've taken all of the, the chaff and the, the uh, hay and it's now separated... You now are left with just the grain. But even within the grain itself, there's still little pieces of stone or little pieces of stuff. And there's now a sifting process. And they put it into a a sieve, a sieve, whatever you want to call it. And you you sift it together and the the real grain falls out and all the other stuff. You can just blow it away. Okay? Remember Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22, The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. This is what it's talking about. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen 
your brethren. So knowing a little bit about the practices of farming and, and wheat production and all the rest of it, it helps us to understand the scripture elsewhere. Okay, back to our story. Naomi finally has her eyes off herself. Wonderful, wonderful story. Her bitterness is gone, and now she is focusing on what God wants her to do. Verse 3. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said, that is, Ruth said to her, and uh, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. This is one of the ways they would protect their grain crop. After having worked all day and all night on it, he would now lie there with his head up towards the grain so that if anybody was to steal it, he would notice. And, uh, and then his feet were down below. So she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Now some of your translations may say it slightly different than that. They may say, um, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant, or... or, or uh, put the corner of your garment over your maidservants. Okay? In either case, um, I like the, the, the reference to under your wing. I think it's actually more appropriate here. First of all, I want to say this. Ruth did not do anything inappropriate or immoral here. Okay? That's the first thing I want to stress. In reality, this is actually an act of faith on her part. The Bible teaches that Boaz is her kinsman redeemer and that he is obligated to fulfill that duty. And so Ruth has been taught this now by Naomi and she takes God at his word and says, all right, if you have provided for me a kinsman redeemer, I am going to believe your word and I am going to act on that. And this is what she's doing here. This is acting in faith. Faith is simply taking God at his word and saying, God says it, I believe it, I'm going to act on it. Okay? And so that's what she, she does. Um, <clears throat> so Ruth came to the threshing floor. And so let me just stress a couple of things. This is a public place, not his bedroom. Secondly, she came under the privacy of darkness. And I really think she did this uh, to give Boaz an opportunity to say, no, I don't want to redeem you. Because he had that right to do so. It wasn't proper to do so, but he had that right. Um, and so he was given the opportunity to reject the proposal without embarrassment. The scripture is so careful to respect her morality here. And if you notice in this passage, four times it says she lay down at his feet not by his side, at his feet, okay? It's actually an act of humility, and she is presenting herself uh, to him. She uncovered his feet, which is, which, which is a ceremonial act, and it's saying, look, take the corner of your garment 
and cover me. It's like a wing of a, uh, of a chicken or a wing of a hen that, uh, that will cover the chicks and protect the, chick, the, the, uh, the baby chicks. And that's really what she's saying to him. Cover me. Uh, cover me. He had already shown her favor in chapter 2, and he already commended her for that in verse 12 of chapter 2, where it says this, The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And so she had already sought refuge under the wings of the Lord. Now she is seeking refuge under the wings of Boaz. And she came in confidence. She came in faith, believing that he would fulfill the legal requirement to be her kinsman redeemer. She came at night. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in a sense, Nicodemus was coming to Jesus and saying the same thing Ruth is saying here. Take me under your wings. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night under the privacy of darkness. It was a public place. And there in this private meeting, Nicodemus learned what it would take to redeem his soul. He must be born again. And for that to happen, the legal requirement of death for sins must be met. And in that sense, Nicodemus was seeking refuge under the wings of Jesus. Would Jesus be willing to fulfill the legal requirement to be his redeemer? And the answer is found just a few verses later in John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous verse in all the Bible, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so the question comes to us as well this morning. Like Naomi, we want what's best for you. And the best thing for you is to point you to the only one who can save your soul, the only one who can redeem you. You cannot redeem yourself. It's impossible. He alone can save you. And so the, the question for you is really simple. Will you come to him for refuge? Will you trust in Jesus Christ as your redeemer? Will you bow at his feet like Ruth at, at the feet of Boaz and say, I am Ruth. I am Dawn. I am whatever your name is. Take me under your wings. Be my redeemer. And see what the Lord has to say. Well, let's see what Boaz said. Then he said, verse 10, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. There are a lot of people claiming to be redeemers out there, to be saviors out there, rich or poor, and you've chased after none of them. Okay? There are a lot of people today who claim to be saviors, who claim to be the way to heaven. Okay, and you haven't pursued them. There is only one. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, my daughter, he says, verse 11, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. 
for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. So Boaz stirred in the middle of the night. He awoke, found Ruth there laying at his feet. She says, I'm your maidservant. Take me under your wings, for you are a close relative. You know, there's another story in the Bible. It's also found in the New Testament. And it's about a woman who had been sick for 12 years. And she made her way through the crowd one day when she saw that Jesus was walking by. And she reached down and she touched the hem of his garment. And immediately she was healed. I wonder, I don't know this, I'm speculating, but I wonder if in her morning quiet time that day she was reading in the book of Ruth. And she read about Ruth reaching out and touching the hem of Boaz's garment saying, take me under your wings. And if this is what she was doing this very day with the Lord Jesus. And stepping out in faith and believing that Jesus would take her under his wings and heal her. And she touched the hem of his garment. And when she publicly acknowledged that she had touched him, he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. If you have not yet trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, reach out and simply touch the hem of his garment. And he will save you. He will heal you and forgive all of your sins. By faith, believe, and he will save you. Jesus, uh, The Bible says, And the one who comes to me... I will by no means cast out. I love what Boaz says, and I I take this to be what the Lord must be saying to us as well. Do not fear, for I will do for you all that you request. You know, it's a bold thing for her to come in a way. I mean, it's a legal right for her to ask for it. And it's a legal right for us to ask for it too. Because God has made an offer that whoever comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. And so he's made the offer. Now all we need to do is receive. We need to believe and receive uh, him as our Savior and Lord. Do not fear, for I will do all that you request. Well, the tension in the story is not over yet. Because in verse 12 we read, Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I You know, I stop here for just a second because it's really, really interesting to me in this story. He already knew that. He already knew he was a close relative. He had already done the investigation. He already knew that there was actually somebody who had priority over him. And he's saying, yeah, I already know this story, but I'm sure glad you asked. You could have asked the other guy, and you didn't. You asked me. I am going to do everything I can to meet every need that you have. Wonderful. And it was almost like he was waiting for her to come and say, Hey, will you be my Redeemer? Will you be my kinsman Redeemer? And Jesus is waiting for you this morning to ask him to be your Redeemer. But there's one hurdle that has to be overcome in Boaz's case. There's a closer relative who has the first right of refusal. Verse 13, Stay the night. In the morning it shall be that he will perform the duty of a close relative for you. Good. If that's the case, fine. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. What is the duty that must be performed? Well, there are really two laws, and we're going to look at them. The first one is the 
property inheritance law found in Numbers 27, verses 8 through 11. And it says this, And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, very simply put, the law states that whatever is owned by a man, when he dies, it is to be passed on to his closest relative. If he has a son, then the son is to get it. Uh, If he has no son, it should go to his daughter. If he has no daughter, the inheritance goes to the immediate relatives. And if there are no immediate relatives, then it goes to his closest relative somewhere down the line. But it always stays in the same family. It should go to the nearest kinsman. So let's talk about this particular case. Elimelech had died. He had two sons. And so naturally the inheritance would go to the two sons. But they also died. And so it now is, there are no more sons. There are no more close relatives. And the closest relatives are Boaz and some other nameless guy, okay? And whoever this nameless guy is actually is closer than Boaz. So that's the issue here. Now, what had happened is the inheritance or the land that they owned, the property that they had owned, had probably been sold because they were now poor, and so they didn't possess the land. But it was, it was theirs by right if it could be redeemed, if it could be bought back. And so that's what is happening here. There's, there's land involved or there's, there are possessions involved. And it's worth something. And it's, if we could buy back the land, now we have more land, right? So the only person who could do that is a kinsman redeemer, the nearest male blood relative. And so the, the, the process was this. It means the kinsman redeemer would go to the civil court and he would purchase the property for the relative. So that has to do with the law of property inheritance. But there's another law involved here, and that has to do with the law of leveret marriage. You go, what is leveret marriage? Well, glad you asked. Deuteronomy 25. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies, and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son that she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my, brother's, pardon me, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her. Okay. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. 
and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. Wow. Well, to make this a little more understandable, um, let's talk about names. Elimelech had two sons. Both sons married. Both sons died childless. That meant that they had no one else in the family to carry on the family name or to carry on the inheritance. And that name would be lost in Israel forever. There would be no way of that name being carried on because there were no male children left. That was it. And so God has a law here, the Leverett Marriage Law, that states that if there is a close relative, they are required to marry the deceased's widow, so the, the boy's wife. Okay? Let me do, say it this way. If I had a brother, and I was married to Krista, which I am. I am actually married to her. Okay? <laughs> and I died, and she's childless. Thankfully, she has seven kids. Okay? <laughs> But she died childless, and I had a brother. I know this is a lot of what-ifs, right? My brother would be required to marry her and raise up a son for me so that my name would not be lost in Israel if I was an Isra- you know, Israelite. Okay? So I know there's a lot of ifs. That's what's happening here. And so I hope I haven't confused you. The closest relative actually has the right to say no. I read a funny story this week of a man was commenting on this, and he said, you know, I kind of like this whole idea of the Leverett marriage thing because it would really make brothers in a family make sure that they were picking a good wife. (laughs) I don't want you marrying that one because if you die, I'm going to have to take her, okay? So, yeah, it's, uh, it would be kind of a family arranged marriage, I think. Yeah, she's okay, you know. You're good. So, there's a near kinsman to Elimelech, and he's legally obligated to marry Ruth and raise up a son. So, here's the issue. You come to the city gate, and you say, I want to buy the land. Because that's of value. And so the near kinsman can actually come and say that. I want to redeem the land. Only problem is the land, with the land also comes the wife. So do you want both or do you want just the one? Because you can't have one without the other. Ultimately, that's what's going to happen here. But that's for next week. All right. Ruth chapter 3, verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. So when, he came to the mother, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And he said, and she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. The curtain closes 
on this uh, scene, and we leave Ruth and Naomi sitting around the kitchen table waiting, waiting for the outcome of her redemption. Naomi's faith has been restored, no doubt, and she knows that the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter and that he will do everything he can to redeem Ruth to himself. Now, although we have to wait until next week to finish this story, I want to tell you about a better story and a better person than Boaz, our Boaz, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ did not rest. He has already concluded the matter concerning your redemption. And Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins in full on the cross. And he did not redeem you with corruptible things like silver and gold, which is what would happen here. He redeemed you with his precious blood poured out upon the cross. He paid for your sins in full. And when he died on the cross of Calvary, last words he said, finished. Your redemption, the payment price, has been paid in full. And the way is now open for you to be redeemed. The price to redeem you has been paid. And so I just simply ask you, will you take this man, Jesus Christ, to be your Savior, to be your Redeemer, to have and to hold for all eternity? Let's pray. And after I pray, Howard will come up and we'll pray for the uh, food um, for the picnic. Lord, we come to you. We thank you so much for this story of Ruth and how it illustrates for us in so many ways uh, the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that there is nothing we can do to add to that work. There's nothing we can do to earn our way to heaven, but that he has done it all. And we just praise you and thank you for what you've done for us, Lord Jesus. We pray that none here would miss the opportunity to have one who is their kinsman redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.